Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal. We have two topics today. And for the third segment, I'm going to provide a quick informational update on the novel coronavirus and COVID-19 disease at the end. But in the segment before that, we cover the moves by New York City lawmakers to stop all the stores, restaurants, and retail establishments that were trying to go cashless from refusing cash payments and A6NZ general partner Alex Rimpel on the fintech team shares the broader implications of that news. And in the first segment, we quickly cover an unconfirmed report that Google and Valve may be bringing Steam support to Chrome and Chromebooks. And the news was first reported based on a conversation with the director of product management for Google's Chrome OS, but Google did not confirm that. We discuss what this could mean more broadly for the gaming ecosystem and beyond in conversation with Jonathan Lai and general partner Andrew Chen on the consumer team. As a reminder, none of the following should be taken as investment advice. Please see a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information. The headline we're covering is, quote, Google is working to bring official Steam support to Chrome OS. Let's just actually talk about what is the broader implications of Steam itself and from your vantage point as experts in the gaming industry. So Steam is interesting because it's the world's largest digital marketplace for PC games. It's created by a company called Valve Corporation. Essentially, Valve got its start by creating a game called Half-Life about 20 years ago. And Half-Life was a first-person shooter set in sort of an original sort of space universe. Mm-hmm. became very successful. And in the success of, um, of that game, yep. Valve essentially created a, a, a launcher, which they then turned into a marketplace for selling and distributing other third-party games. And the interesting thing about it is that at the time, PC games was actually a very difficult business to be in if you were a small or independent developer, because most distribution of PC games is physical. So you had to actually go to a store, pick up like a little disc. I remember that. That's right. GameStop, all that stuff. GameStop, Electronic Boutique, Walmart, Best Buy. And so the publishers controlled the access to these sort of physical retail points, and they charged um, an arm and a leg for access to that distribution. So it wasn't uncommon for developers to take a 20 or 30% revenue share of the proceeds from their games, and the publishers got the lion's share. Steam actually flipped out on its head. It actually gave developers 70% of the revenue, and it ah. took a 30% cut. And so they transferred both power and economics back into the hands of developers. And I think, more importantly, beyond just the economic consequences of that, they empowered an entire new class of developers that otherwise would not have been able to survive and do out. And some of these indie developers have spawned billion-dollar games today, like games like PUBG, right. Fortnite, essentially. Like they all started off as sort of relatively smaller sort of indie incarnations. And so wonderful thing about Steam is that because it's been around for 20 years, it has this incredible long tail of games. I think the last statistic they published, Steam had over 30,000 games. Right, but in the context of this news, the significance is that it allows it to migrate more into more mainstream PCs and console. The director of product management for Google's Chrome said that gaming is the single most popular category of downloads for Play Store content on Chromebooks. So we know that Chrome OS can run Android games and also there's a lot of Chrome extensions that are literally just games. So what kinds of games will Steam unlock for Chrome OS that haven't existed yet today? With a catalog of 30,000 games, not all of them will be able to run on Chrome OS hardware, but it actually opens up a possibility for indie developers that were previously getting perhaps less screen time or feature time and higher powered hardware to actually sort of 
get their sort of day in the sun on Chromebooks. And just to give you a sense of the size and scope of the user network as well, I think the last reported numbers for Steam was 90 million monthly active users, 1 billion registered accounts. That's pretty incredible when you consider the world's population is 7 billion. So at any given moment in time, that's 14, 15% of the world's yeah. population on a single PC gaming platform. Yeah. And so it, that instantly enables Chromebooks to tap into a social graph, which it may not have had access to before. So I think like educational games, things that sort of skew from sort of ages 6 through 12, for example, that aren't traditionally targeted by sort of core game developers might actually become a new category of popularity in Chromebooks. You know, if you look at the market, it is incredibly successful in K-12 you know, education. I read a stat that 60% of all the computers purchased in schools at this point are, are actually Chromebooks. As we know, within, within games, because of the fact that kids are so important, you know, Minecraft is about kids, Roblox is about kids, Stadia has sort of this younger demographic as well. And so when you look at all that, you know, it, it makes sense there. That said, it sort of is meant to be this companion device. It has pretty limited GPU, pretty limited storage capacity. At the same time, I think the whole Chrome OS ecosystem is going to need to evolve in order to support them. There was some question of whether they would work with NVIDIA or not eventually to bring GPUs to these devices or not. Is there any implications specifically related to that? Because, you know, it's actually kind of a funny circular argument. The advantage is GPUs themselves, graphic processing units advanced because of the gaming industry, then went into deep learning and AI and other applications of parallel processing. They were originally advanced because of the high-level graphics required and everything, and now we're kind of coming full circle to, wait, are these GPUs going to actually come back to laptops for the purpose of gaming? Some of the more recent laptops that have come out these days that are gaming ultrabooks actually sport NVIDIA desktop class graphics and the form factor of a low-power laptop GPU, which yeah. I think makes possible things like what you just mentioned, putting in a graphics chip into a Chromebook. Right, it doesn't have to be a casual gaming device anymore. So I think the other thing that is going to be really interesting to watch is, as an alternative, is what happens with Google Stadia. Google Stadia is a big effort by Google recently to be able to run games in the cloud, any kind of game. It could be, you know, ones that were targeted originally at, you know, PC or console, or it could be, you know, much more casual ones. And to play it across all of your devices the same way that, in fact, it even uses like Chromecast technology as, as part of it. And so it makes it so that, you know, you could potentially take it on the go with you. You could play it on these devices that don't have these beefy GPUs and storage attached yeah, to it. Yeah. And so it should unlock a huge audience. It's basically a console that you can carry with you that lets you carry cloud gaming with you wherever you go. That's right. It solves a really interesting problem as well because right now if Chromebooks, if they have 30, 40 gigs of storage, you know, that's not going to actually be enough to install a bunch of the really tier one games that are that are out there. And so playing, if you're going to play, you know, Red Dead Redemption 2 or something like that, you're going to want to actually do it over cloud. And so at the very high end of the market, it may be that that ends up going to cloud gaming at the very hyper casual end, you know, that that might actually work with just the Google Play Store and the fact that Chrome OS can actually run Android apps. So I, I think what's really exciting here is it sort of unlocks this tier of of games that were meant for like longer sit-down sessions, not necessarily the hyper casual set, but especially from the long tail indie developers who may not have the the time or ability to go target all the different platforms, it's, I think, going to be really fantastic for the yeah. ecosystem. And what is the significance of cloud gaming? Like, why does that matter? We recently published a blog post in this that has a little bit more detail, but at a high level, we think that cloud gaming could be transformational for entertainment overall over the long term by unlocking new gameplay experiences that previously were not possible without Such using as? the cloud. 
for example, the notion of um, click the play or click the join, which is when you actually um, see an ad or a video of a gameplay session that's being hosted in the cloud, and then you can actually click to immediately jump into a game and play alongside the um, players in that game. I think that's something that's not really possible today, but would be transformational for both user acquisition and also just social onboarding. So bottom line it for me, why does this news matter from your vantage point? I think this news is super interesting in that it grows the market, being able to access you know just a huge demographic of this really important segment of kids and in educational settings. I think that's interesting from the Steam standpoint. From the Chrome OS standpoint, what's really interesting is that this will certainly push many of the use cases and the hardware specs and what people are, are excited to be able to do. You know, today if you think of it as like an email laptop, it doesn't need to be, you know, particularly powerful. But in order to get beefier use cases, games is a really interesting kind of first category of apps that can drive that. And then once you're building beefier Chromebooks, then you could imagine how this becomes a segue into video and audio editing, you know, and, and all of that. Oh, interesting. Especially if you add the GPUs later. Thank you so much for joining this segment, you guys. Thank you. Okay, we're talking about this headline that was posted in the New York Post, quote, cashless businesses are now banned in New York City. So why is this news? Why does it matter? Well, I'm sure you've heard of progressive versus regressive taxes. So as an example, the reason why parking tickets are unfair, assuming that the parking ticket was not correctly given, is if you're a billionaire, you can hire a lawyer and deal with your parking ticket. Whereas if you're an hourly worker making minimum wage, you can contest it, in which case you'll lose your job because you have to take eight hours off and go to the courthouse. Um, You certainly can't afford to hire a lawyer. And then as a percentage of your income, it's massive. So that would be a regressive tax. So if you make $10 million a year, you know, once you've made $100,000, you can make ends meet, and then the $9.9 million is all gravy. Whereas if you make $50,000 a year, yes, yes, you're paying less taxes total, but you have certain fixed costs that you have to live in. So something that would be progressive takes that into account, right? So you try to tax wealthier people more because they don't need all of that money to actually survive, and you try to tax poor people less because if you were to even tax them 15%, 20%, something flat, then they might not have enough to actually make ends meet. Right. So this actually goes to the cash versus cashless thing. So if you have a lot of money, you get your banking services for free. But there's this whole world of prepaid cards that cost about $1.95 on top of whatever you add to it. Mm -hmm. If you're lower middle class, you might not be able to get a bank account. There's a company that monitors and keeps like this master database of everybody who's who's uh, bounced three checks in their lifetime. They can basically never open a checking account again. So their only option is to go prepaid. So you, you go to a Walmart, buy a $100 card. It's actually going to cost you $101.95. Then you have to pay $7.95 per month to have this card unless you have over $1,000 on it. Then if you want to actually withdraw cash, you have to pay $2.50 on top of whatever the ATM is actually charging you. So if I only can scrape together $100 of savings per month, and then I put it into my trusty credit card, $7.95 is being eaten per month. Like if I didn't spend any money, my card and my balance would go to zero simply for the privilege of having access to the plastic banking system with a prepaid card. So you're basically saying that... While this is not a government tax, going cashless, while intended to be convenient, is a regressive tax on the poor. 
It ends up being a regressive tax on the poor, yes. Right. Normally, people think of regressive and progressive taxes as being a government thing in between citizens and their government. Again, if you're very wealthy, it's so much more convenient to go like put stuff on your credit card and not carry around money if you're in, the, in a lower socioeconomic spectrum. You have to pay for the privilege of having access to a card. What are the reasons that a business would want to go cashless? So the reasons why a lot of businesses want to go cashless is they don't have to deal with employee theft. They don't have to deal with a slowdown in the checkout line. You don't have to deal with remitting the cash. Like you used to see these like armed trucks with mm-hmm. like people that would like take bags of money and in movies they get robbed all the time by people with masks and guns. You don't have to deal with that if you're yeah. processing credit cards. You do every now and then see a business that says cash only. I'm so glad you're answering this because I was about to ask you why the reverse happens, which is why things go cash only. Well, there there are two very good reasons for this. So one is credit card fees are high. And then number two is it's much, much easier to cheat on your taxes if there's no actual record of money coming in. Right. Whenever I see a business that says cash only, I'm actually not thinking, wow, they, they, they very strongly believe in not having regressive taxes. I'd say 99% of the time, it's we don't like paying 2%, which is universal, by the way. Walmart doesn't like paying 2%. If Walmart could make people pay with cash, they would, but they just find that it widens the aperture of people buying. So you have to give access to digital payment methods. How do you think about this? Not just in terms of whether to go cash or cashless, but this idea of pure digitizing money. Because when I think about like the international landscape, It was very interesting when Uber and all these companies would come to India and other countries and have to contend with the fact that a lot of people didn't have credit cards. And it was considered progress to move people onto credit cards. I'm trying to understand the larger where this is going because your point is it's regressive, disproportionately punishing to poor. It's a form of unconscious bias. We definitely don't want that. But it also does feel backward that we aren't moving forward into a digital world. That's a very fair question. So there's no question that the world will go cashless. And I'm very much in favor of that. It should happen. But the the fees are too high for both merchants and consumers. Why can't you buy a car on your credit card? Well, the reason why is because that 2% on a $30,000 car is a lot. And then from the consumer perspective, again, there is a large, large segment of people that they're they're taxed for the privilege of having a bank account. You would be pro-Luddite if you said, let's go back to pieces of paper. Like, why not go back to gold ingots while you're at it? These things should go cashless, but you have to somehow reconcile that with these two problems that you're creating both for merchants, especially small merchants, where they don't have the the clout to negotiate fees lower, and also for consumers that they don't get cut out of the system. That seems not fair. So, you know, one way of making money is on lending and what's called net interest margin, and the other way is on fees. Poor people typically get monetized via fees. Rich people typically get monetized via net interest margin. If you look about banking, their reason for overfeeing you is to kind of drive you away. There are other companies that have taken that mantle and said, we will bank those people, but you know we got to charge them very high fees. And in many cases, that's not because those companies are bad. It's just they don't have a good path to acquiring those customers very well. And you're arguing that there's a new wave of technology enabled startups that can actually give access 
in a way that's more cost-effective. So if I have to go mail you a piece of plastic, the manufacturing, the, the manufacturing plastic, costs right, is 50 right, cents. Right. So like, let's just say it costs a dollar to go mail you a card. And then maybe one out of four cards that I mail don't actually get used because the person applies for it. Then they have second, they, they're like, ah, I don't want to use this thing. So it actually costs $4. Like these costs add up and you have to somehow recoup them. And you can't recoup them by loaning out the money because these people don't deposit very much money. Whereas if I could just push a new card to your Android device, and then boom, you apply for this thing, it's automatically yeah. in your wallet, and it costs nothing to go do that. Yeah. And that dramatically brings down the cost that you then have to recoup from charging very high fees. If you have a company that already has distribution and it can roll out a banking product that doesn't really cost you anything because, again, there's no plastic, there's no acquisition cost either. Yeah. And then you can truly bring down fees to zero, which is very exciting. So bottom line it for me, Alex, how should we think about this news about New York City trying to go cashless and then not being able to? From the consumer perspective, until you get rid of this regressive tax, you have to be somewhat wealthy in order not to be burdened with banking fees. It's not a Luddite policy, as you might think. It's actually, it's trying to be a progressive policy when it comes to letting people that are poor still buy things at all sorts of stores that they might otherwise be closed out of because the cost of accessing a digital payment device that is not cash is, is high. Well, thank you for doing this segment, Alex. It was my pleasure. Okay, so in this third segment, I'm just going to give a quick update on the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 disease. I'm doing this for regular listeners since we covered the topic in our January and February episodes on this show. For those who missed those episodes, we discussed key terminology such as what are not means, how the RT-PCR tests work, where technology such as electronic health records and the future unbundling of the hospital may come in and more. We also define the term infodemics, which is a topic that the World Health Organization covers in their latest situation update as of Friday, and they define it as, quote, an excessive amount of information about a problem, which makes it difficult to identify a solution. Infodemics can spread misinformation, disinformation, and rumors during a health emergency. They've identified trusted sources and engaged them as amplifiers of accurate, timely information through what they're calling, quote, trust chains. This is all from situation update number 45, which, by the way, is very notable because we started on this show with update number six and later update number 25. So things are moving pretty fast. So now onto the latest statistics. According to the World Health Organization, as of March 4th, remember this is a fast-developing story and will also be changing due to wider availability of testing, there are a total of 95,333 confirmed cases globally with 14,768 confirmed cases and 267 deaths outside of China and 85 countries slash territories reporting cases. And the World Health Organization risk assessment moved from high since our last update to very high at the China regional and global levels. And then specifically for the statistics in the United States, the CDC reported as of March 6th on their site that the total cases are at 164 with 11 total deaths so far and 19 states reporting cases and Washington, California, and New York reporting the most cases so far. The CDC also reported on their site March 3rd that during the week of February 23rd, Community spread of the virus that causes COVID-19 was reported in California in two places, Oregon and Washington. 
This resulted in the first U.S. death in Washington, as well as the first reported case of COVID-19 in a healthcare worker and the first potential outbreak in a long-term care facility. They note as well that, quote, more cases of COVID-19 are likely to be identified in the coming days, including more cases in the United States. It's also likely that person-to-person spread will continue to occur, including in communities in the United States. It's likely that at some point widespread transmission of COVID-19 in the United States will occur. End quote. That's a quote from the CDC website. For their latest guidance on travel and other prevention and preparation recommendations, please see cdc.gov. Thank you for listening to 16 Minutes.